this idea that government is beholden to the people, that it has no other source of power except the sovereign people, is still the newest and the most unique idea in all the long history of man's relation to man. I think that we have a core set of values that are enshrined in our Constitution, in our body of law, that are exceptional. What our framers debated that, that, that whole summer in Philadelphia in 1787. Our Constitution begins with the word, we the people of the United States. That is what it means to say that we have a government of laws and not of men. Welcome back to Constitutional Conventions, the official podcast of the Yale Law School Federalist Society. My name is Jonathan Feld. I'll be your host. I'm joined by my co-host, Zach Austin, and our second guest and our first live guest, Judge Walker from the D.C. Circuit. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much. I'm happy to be here. Again, thanks for joining us, Judge. I know we've been uh, struggling to get our setup all put together here, and uh, like all great revolutionary escapades, we are uh, figuring out how to work the microphones, but we'll get them turned on soon enough. How many lawyers does it take to figure out how to work about $200 worth of audio equipment? <laughs> well, three law grads, maybe a couple more than it might otherwise take. But Judge Walker sits on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Previously, he was a judge of the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Kentucky. Before Judge Walker was elevated to the bench, he was a professor at the University of Louisville Brandeis School of Law where his scholarship focused on separation of powers issues, national security, administrative law, and federal courts. At the University of Louisville, Judge Walker co-founded the Ordered Liberty Program, a fellowship devoted to the study of federalism, separation of powers, originalism, natural rights, and the common good. In addition to Judge Walker's time as a judge and an academic, he has also practiced appellate law in Washington, D.C., and served as a speechwriter for Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. Judge Walker earned his BA from Duke University and his JD from Harvard Law School. And after law school, he clerked for then Judge Kavanaugh on the DC Circuit and Justice Kennedy on the US Supreme Court. Judge Walker, thanks for being here today. And uh, condolences on the loss to Duke the other day. I'm not over it. Uh, my wife, who's an even bigger Duke basketball fan than I am, will never get over it. Uh, we were engaged in Duke's basketball stadium and I think we're currently on spring break with our daughter, and it's unclear whether my wife will enjoy a single day of this spring break as a result <laughs> of Duke's loss to North Carolina. Well, if it's any cold comfort, I grew up about 10 minutes from Villanova University, and I watched the Wildcats get walloped by what I assume is going to be the national champion, Kansas Jayhawks, by the time this episode goes live. I hope they are the national champions, because each year, my preference is for Duke to win. If Duke can't win, because I grew up in Louisville and grew up a Kentucky basketball fan, I prefer either Kentucky to win or Louisville to win. And if Duke, Kentucky, and Louisville cannot win, I prefer anybody but North Carolina <laughs> Right, well, it's, it's one Duke, two, a Kentucky team, three, whoever beats UNC, right? That's, you know, we could talk about college basketball all day, but as you mentioned, uh, Kentucky's known for its basketball, it's known for a lot of other things, and it's kind of a weird thing in the chapter. There are a lot of the friends of the chapter, a lot of the esteemed judges of the Eastern and Western districts of Kentucky are all really esteemed jurists, yourself included. So what is it in the water in Kentucky? The, the homeland of Henry Clay and the birthplace of Abraham Lincoln, is that, is that just the land of great lawyers? <laughs> Well, I do love Louisville, Kentucky. I grew up there and then spent 13 years away from it starting in college and was lucky enough to get to come home and I got to teach, which I loved my five years at the University of Louisville and Zach. Good pronunciation on the word Louisville for our listeners. Zach was kind of practicing beforehand. <laughs> 
<laughs> they don't teach us that up in Ohio. <laughs> I think you, I think you nailed it. And in the so, clerkship process, there's actually a geography section <laughs> that people don't know about. <laughs> so yeah, I love the state. I love the city. My family is there, and it's a great place. It's a place where, you know, there are some big cities where you can find some great place to eat, but you can't afford a house, and there. Are, Plenty of places out there where you can afford a house, but you can't find a good restaurant to eat in. And at Louisville, you can do both. Well, if there's one thing we're blessed with here in New Haven, it's finding good food when we need it. I, I've been here now seven years, and I will swear by the food to any of our listeners who would uh, question New Haven's chops on that front. But speaking of chops, one of the things that we've seen just really in the first two episodes of the podcast is this national security connection that we keep coming back to with uh, our guests and the students who are in the chapter right now. And I think one of the things that really jumps off the page to me about your bio is this experience you had with Secretary Rumsfeld. Can you just talk a little bit about what that was like? I mean, for some of our folks coming now sort of straight through for college, the Bush administration can sound like ancient history. Um, but well, I'm happy to talk about that, Zach. I started as a speechwriter for Secretary Rumsfeld in the Pentagon in 2005, and it was my first job out of college. And I said at the time, I probably when it came to people working in the Pentagon, had the longest hair and the shortest resume. But it was a, a fantastic experience and I was very lucky to, to sort of stumble into it. I interviewed to be a fact checker in the speechwriting office and the chief speechwriter at the time, Matt Latimer, who's become a great friend and who I'm, I'm grateful to uh, for many reasons, he really liked the <laughs> kind of eager, wannabe fact checker who he was interviewing and we hit it off. He sent me home with an assignment. He said, pretend that you're writing a speech for Secretary Rumsfeld at the Chicago Chamber of Commerce. That's, that was Don Rumsfeld's hometown. And he said, give it a shot and send it back to us. And if we like what we see, maybe we'll hire you as a speechwriter. And so I, I got the job. Um, those were Iraq war years. They were Afghanistan war years. And uh, I felt really lucky to, to get to be there. It's pretty funny. I feel like a lot of law students, and especially law students at Yale Law School, dream of living the Will Bailey, Sam Seaborn lifestyle. And it turns out that I guess Sam Seaborn ends up getting, getting himself appointed to the D.C. Circuit. <laughs> Aaron Sorkin continued, <laughs> continued the show a little bit longer. I guess I wanted to ask, and, and maybe touch on a little bit, to put a pin in the Rumsfeld discussion, because we're definitely going to get back to that at some point. But related to uh, the study of law, I think one of the most well-known Rumsfeld lines, you know, is the known unknowns. The alternative in the law is really trying to figure out the unknowns and turn them into knowns. And I guess, you know, has that, not necessarily the Rumsfeld line per se, but ha has that been an important part of your judicial philosophy? Well, I don't, I don't want to draw, I had not thought about this until you just asked that question. I, I wouldn't want to make too much of it, uh, except that I will say, the first thing I used to say to law students when I was teaching, during orientation, I'd give a little talk, the, I would tell them to get used to uncertainty, embrace the uncertainty. If you want to go to a grad school where all the answers have definite right or wrong answers and all, all reasonable people will eventually agree on what the right answer is, uh, then maybe go to med school or something. I, I, don't, I, don't, uh, I, don't, I don't know enough about med school to know whether that's a correct statement or not. But in law, reasonable, reasonable people can disagree about what the law means. Now, I don't think that you draw from that the conclusion that there is no truth, that, that there is no 
uh, right answer or wrong answer. It's just that it's really hard to figure it out. And I try to come at that question now in my current job with humility. And I encourage my students to do the same, but also to avoid frustration when it, when it gets hard. To me, that's, that's part of the fun of law school and it's part of the fun of the law. So one of the questions that's on the minds of, you know, really everyone in our chapter right now is law school culture. And I think you've had the chance not just to go back home and see what it was like to be a lawyer when you returned to Louisville, but also to sort of give back to the community by, by teaching the next generation of students there. What would you say the culture was like among the student body you were teaching, maybe compared to the students that you went to school with at Harvard Law School? Well, I loved my three years at law school. I wasn't sure what to expect. I had read the, the Scott Turow book 1L, and I had seen the movie The Paper Chase. And I can remember a conversation with uh, my then fiance, now wife, about a week before law school, and I just said to her, this was a big mistake. <laughs> I should never have signed up for this. And then, you know, it was just a day or two into law school that I fell in love with it, and enjoyed the rest of the three years. And one of the things I enjoyed most was getting to explore ideas. I'm sure I said plenty of things in class discussions uh, that were wrong that I would look back at now and maybe even cringe a little bit, but I was allowed to say them and I was told when I was wrong, when the professor thought I was wrong, the professor said, I think you're wrong. When another classmate thought I was wrong, another classmate said, I think you're wrong. And that was great, and that was healthy, and it made me a better law student and hopefully eventually a better lawyer. But it was always done with a civil discourse. It was never done with any kind of looming, chilling threat that uh, if you say the wrong thing, there's going to be consequences for you, whether it's social consequences or grade consequences or even career consequences. That just never even occurred to me at the time. And my impression is that that has changed in some places, and I'm sad that it has. I wanted to actually talk to you about this exact issue because I was reading about some of the news articles that had come out around the time of your first appointment to the district court, and I read this really wonderful Don't, quote. don't believe them. <laughs> That's, yeah, exactly. It's like the uh, famous William F. Buckley line when he ran for mayor of New York and they asked him, if elected mayor, what's the first thing you would do? And Buckley replied, demand a recount. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so uh, these people, I think, were, were probably telling the truth because uh, there's this wonderful quote from the woman who runs the Louisville chapter of the ACS, uh, which is, for those who don't know, a group of progressive lawyers. And she had said uh, when you were, I think, first nominated to, to the district court uh, that you were, and this is a quote, gracious, warm, and engaging, and impressed me as a thoughtful, respectful, and willing listener. And she said those qualities would lead her to believe he will be a strong addition to the federal bench. And I thought that was wonderful because this is presumably a woman who disagrees with you pretty vociferously on all issues of kind of politics and public policy, but who nevertheless recognizes somebody who is eminently qualified to be, to be on the bench despite those disagreements. And I guess the question that percolates in my mind is it's easy for those in elite circles to get caught up in the dogfight of partisan politics. Do you think that there is hope at the communal level of Louisville lawyers, of, of different towns across the country, maybe different chambers in district courts and, and you know, appellate courts across the country, for there to be a little bit more agreement or, or room for real discussion than we see in the headlines of top law schools today? I do, and I, I think it's not just, it's, and I think it's not just there, 
I think it's in a lot of parts of the judiciary as well. I see it on my, my current court. Uh, we have judges who were appointed, I think, for, for every president, going back to President Carter. And uh, we don't agree with each other about a lot of things. Uh, I would say there are plenty of times we disagree with each other. There are, there are many more times that we do agree with each other. But when we disagree, it's polite, it's professional, it's collegial, it's civil. And my, my impression uh, from uh, clerking uh, for a year on the Supreme Court and from the stories that I've heard before and afterwards is that that court is also in some ways a model for this. I, I think I remember seeing a, a speech by Justice Kagan where uh, she tells the story that she was, she was not pleased after a particular conference uh, where you know, she had voted and that vote was not in the majority. And there's a tradition that after each conference, they go to lunch together, all nine justices, and they don't talk business at the lunch, and she didn't want to go. And Justice Ginsburg said, oh, no, you have to go. You must go. And, you know, the more traditions like that that exist, whether it's at the local level or whether it's in courts uh, or whether it's anywhere else, I think it's, it's good for the public, and um, the, the more the better. It's funny that you mentioned that. It reminds me of, I think it was a Joe Biden campaign line, but it was certainly a campaign line that there used to be a Senate dining room where Republicans and, and Democrats could go sit and, and eat meals together. And that room literally no longer exists in the Capitol building, apparently. <laughs> apparently it's been repurposed or something like that. Uh, and I guess it reminds me, uh, furthermore, of the way that jurisprudence and the American court system is structured and the way that that influences those who have a national focus, I think distorts the picture in the sense that any case that reaches the Supreme Court, any case that gets cert, is inherently going to be a difficult case and will often lead to pretty sharp divisions between really intelligent and thoughtful people. And it obscures the fact that at the district level, a lot of these broad philosophical distinctions between originalists and textualists and those who believe in a living constitution don't really apply all that often, or at least in quite the same way that seems so divisive on the national level. And I guess I'm curious if you thought that somehow relates to your work at Louisville with the Ordered Liberty Program. Is that, you know, in terms of molding the next generation, creating a civil society that is respectful of disagreement and nevertheless works towards common goals in the judicial system, you know, justice, but in, in broader society, any number of really important things that we're trying to accomplish as, as an American people? I think you nailed it, John. We just had an Ordered Liberty monthly uh, discussion two days ago, and uh, it was just beautiful. These one L's, two L's, and three L's. Uh, I'm no longer an official part of it. I have I play no role with any kind of responsibility at all. But uh, they still uh, let me tag along as a guest, and it's led by my former colleague, Professor Luke Milligan at U of L's Law School. And we talked about uh, Whitaker Chambers's letter to his children. We talked about uh, this beautiful eye pencil uh, essay uh, that. Uh, was it was in a Milton Friedman book? He didn't he didn't write it originally. Uh, we talked about not that uh, free enterprise is perfect, but that if you're trying to build as many pencils as you can at as low cost as you can and high quality as you can, you're best off with free enterprise and not a central planner. And we contrasted that uh, with the kind of communism that Whitaker Chambers was a part of and a spy for and then broke from. And we talked about his reasons for doing it. Uh, he, he says in, the, in his letter to his children that it, it wasn't about the economics. Uh, it was bigger than that. It was almost spiritual. And we talked about that. 
And you know, these are the, the kinds of discussions that I loved in law school, and then I want every law student to be able to have in law school. And um, at the Order of Liberty program at the University of Louisville, uh, those kinds of discussions happen. I hope that they happen everywhere. Uh, my sense is that uh, there are increasingly a lot of, of students and, and some faculty and, and some administrators at some law schools who are, who are not interested uh, in having discussions where you, where you listen more than you lecture. Well, Judge, one thing that's always struck me every time we've talked is you're a, you're a man of letters. You're very literary and, and sort of always reading, whether it's on the job or off the job. And I think we'd be remiss to leave this interview without asking you for a couple recommendations on uh, just things you're reading right now, things you think are particularly profound or uh, anything you think, you know, you would give yourself if you were considering going back to law school. Again, you mentioned the paper chase is probably not the right way to start. <laughs> Uh, well, I just pulled out my my Audible app, and so I, I can tell you some of the the audiobooks I've enjoyed most recently. The, just finished "Leave Me Alone" and "I'll Make You Rich" by Deirdre McCloskey and her co-author Art Art Carden, uh, and it is delightful. It's pretty short. It's pretty fun. Um, but the thesis, uh, I, I saw John nodding your head. You know this. You know this. I'm very familiar with McCloskey's work. I, I haven't read the particular book. Well, you could probably do justice to her thesis more than I could, but. She has this phrase that she says the English use of it, letting someone have a go. And she says, this is what has made, this is what has made the world 300 or 3,000 times richer than it was a generation ago. And not just in places like the United States and Canada and Western Europe, but in developing countries uh, where poverty has been halved or reduced even more. And she says that around the 1600s, the thing that made the difference was an ideology that embraced the idea that you let people have a go. You don't tell them what to do with their life, with their business, uh, with their faith. And so she goes through all these other possible theories for what might have made the West rich and the rest of the world a lot less poor than it used to be. And she knocks them all down, and I, I don't know enough, to be, honest. to be honest, I don't know enough what to know whether I'm totally persuaded that she's wrong about how insignificant a lot of the other things were, including technology, for example, she, she tosses out there. But uh, that's, that's her theory, and you know, she's, she's got a lot of, of evidence behind it, and I, I, I loved reading it. I, I also just finished Hero of the Empire by Candace Millard, and it tells the story of Winston Churchill's time in the Boer War, which I, uh, in my ignorance, barely knew anything about the Boer War, Boer Wars, plural, really. And, uh, you know, he just couldn't wait to to fight and be a part of it, and he got he got himself captured, and he got he got captured, and he and he escaped, and the escape is something out of a Hollywood movie. It's a great it's a great read, uh, and then the I guess the third book I mentioned um, that I, I read recently is Lincoln's Highway, Lincoln Highway uh, by Amber Tolls, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed his Gentleman of Moscow as well. He writes beautifully, and and at the same time, it's it's a pretty easy read. I read uh, Hero of the Empire last Christmas, actually. Oh, and do you like it? I, I did. I, I, the first thing I did is I put it down and I went to my parents and I said, there's going to be a movie deal in here somewhere. <laughs> if this law school thing doesn't work out, I think I have an idea. Uh, but John mentioned at one point we were going to come back to the, uh, the Rumsfeld connection. And I think one thing about your scholarship, you know, we, we rattled off a couple of areas where you focused. But now on the D.C. circuit, you focus a lot on administrative law. Can you talk about the pivot from you know, doing sort of national security work in the Pentagon to going to administrative law? 
Sure. Uh, well, I guess for starters, my first one of my first law review articles uh, was about the independence of the FBI, or uh, as I argued, the lack of independence. That is, to a degree, you know, you don't want I don't want to state this to to make it sound too extreme, but to a degree, it's, it's important that the FBI not be an out of control FBI, that it not be too independent, and that seemed at the time, it seems now, like something of an intersection between national security law and administrative law, because even though the FBI was a law enforcement agency for most of its history, after September 11th, the president tasked it with prioritizing national security uh, above everything else. Uh, there's still uh, that tension there. I'm not even sure that the, the transition is completely complete, and I think if you were to ask um, you know, a random special agent of the FBI whether that person's job is mainly law enforcement or mainly national security, I think some of them would say uh, they want to work for a law enforcement agency. But you don't want a standing army independent of the commander-in-chief. Likewise, you don't want a law enforcement agency uh, that's too independent of the commander-in-chief. And so I argued that that it ought not be. That was, I suppose... The first article that I wrote, first academic article that I wrote, that combined national security law and administrative law, uh, and then one of my one of my later articles was more focused um, on administrative law, pure administrative law. It was called the Schechter to Chevron spectrum, and it it made some predictions about where the Supreme Court was likely to go in the future with regard to um, the administrative state and the independence of the administrative state, both its independence from the president, but also the administrative state's independence and room for maneuver relative to the federal courts. And I, I think that nothing that has happened since I wrote that article has led me to doubt the predictions that I made. So we spoke a little bit about Churchill, and one of the remarkable things about Churchill's career over the decades, of course, is how many different hats he was able to successfully wear as a military officer, which I think he participated in the last cavalry charge in the British Empire, but I could be wrong about that. So, so don't fact check me. I know, I know you started out as a fact checker, <laughs> but Churchill was a military officer and then uh, you know, a member of, of the cabinet and a member of parliament, prime minister, of course, uh, sea lord. Uh, and so, I guess the relevant analogy here, not to compare you to Churchill too too distinctly, is that you've obviously had quite a different number of important roles in American law and public policy working, again, as a speechwriter in the executive branch, and then working you know, as a judge, both at the district court and then at the appellate level. And I guess the question that arises from that is, how have you, as a thinker and as an individual, thought about these different challenges in relation to each other? How have you handled kind of your role as an employee of an executive administration compared to your role as an independent jurist? Uh, has that been a distinct shift or have there been continuities? And then a follow-on question, of course, is as you've gone from the district court to the appellate court, which is not something that every judge does, have you further shifted gears or are there other things that you've taken with you and learned in the district court that you kind of apply in your appellate work these days? Well, that, there's a lot there, and I, I'm happy to explore as, as much of it as I can remember that you asked. <laughs> but don't let me forget to circle back at the end, if you would, to, to, to Churchill, because um, that ties into a question that Zach asked earlier. But I think that there are a lot of similarities between what I do now and what I've done before, and there are some really big differences. The differences 
begin with the complete absence of um, the, the, the importance of keeping politics and policy out of the judiciary. And, you know, th there's a lot of cynics out there. There's a lot of people who, who are arguing today that judges are politicians in black robes. And, you know, what I'm about to say, don't interpret it to be me naively saying that any judge is perfect. Uh, but I can tell you that every judge I've ever met, and I can speak for myself as well, try to go where the law leads. And uh, you do it without passion or prejudice for any political preference or policy preference. I've thought before it might be interesting and revealing to make a list of all the cases from the past year. And after I've decided them all, to go back and say, you know, if I were a legislator, if I were a policymaker, here's the side that I think, you know, their victory would be best for society. And to see how often that outcome is different than the outcome that I reached as a judge. And uh, I can tell you it would be quite, it would be quite often that that's the case. So that's, that's, the, that's the biggest difference. It's the, it's the judge's job to decide the law and apply the law and to, to do it without concern for politics or policy. On the other hand... I'm just going to interrupt. It sounded like you were about to say it's the judge's job to decide the law and the executive agency's job to break the law. <laughs> <laughs> that's not where you were going. No, no, no. I, 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 that's not where I was going. And, and if, um, what, what I would say in terms of similarities is that the best part of every job I've ever had has been the other people who are doing that job. Uh, whether it's people who I'm answering to or people who I'm, I'm working with uh, and we have a, we all have a different super, we all have a supervisor. And that's true in this job too. My favorite part of the job is my clerks, easy. I also love getting to work with the other judges on the court. It's a big difference between the circuit court and the district court. The circuit court is a team sport. The district court, more of a solo sport. And I, I could not even begin to capture how much I've learned in every job I've had from the people who I've worked with and how grateful I am to everyone who's been a mentor, everyone who's taught me, everyone who has been supportive. So that, that hasn't changed, and I hope that that doesn't change. Well, Judge, you asked us to come back to the Churchill thing at the end, and I did want to use this as an opportunity to intercede. John, I don't know if you know this, but I was a World War I historian <laughs> in undergrad, and the last British cavalry charge was at Hajj, in Palestine at the time, 1917, and did not involve Winston Churchill. So go, go read Hero of the Empire. It'll, it'll teach you a few things. Um, but, Judge, I know you had something to add. It's harsh. It's harsh. <laughs> I feel like I've uh, <laughs> stumbled into a family dispute. We'll, we'll have some choice words for John after the show. Zach and I are actually building trenches right now in the <laughs> studio. You might want to get out of Belgium while you can. <laughs> we need a mediator in here. Um, no, I, for as much as I admire Churchill and um, enjoyed the Millard book and, uh, you know, I love Darkest Hour and, and he's been a hero of mine for a long time, I've read Stalin's War this year and it is really tough. It is really tough on Churchill and the, the argument is that Churchill and Roosevelt accommodated Stalin too much during World War II and that they should have and could have defeated Nazi Germany without 
propping up the Soviet Union to the degree that it did and putting the Soviet Union in a position to impose its own kind of tyranny on Eastern Europe and other parts of the world after World War II. And I'm sure that there is a, a rebuttal to be written out there. I hope it will be written. I enjoy reading it. But coming, coming away from that book, I'm pretty persuaded that for all of Churchill's many virtues, including how important he was to the country and the world in the, in the, the early days of that war, and how right he was about Hitler, that, uh, you know, m- mistakes were made. Uh, and, and let's take it out of the passive voice. Ch- Churchill made mistakes, and those mistakes had uh, serious consequences. I think that's all we're going to have time for today, Judge. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciated it. Thanks, John. Thanks, Zach. It's been a pleasure.